From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Colorado had a wet spring, but it's dry now. All along the Front Range, as the grasses dry out, we're going to have a lot in that urban wild interface that's going to be very dry grasses if we continue to have a warm, dry fall into early winter, which is what we had that year of the Marshall fires. We had a good green up in the spring, then very dry, and you had all of that fuel. That's in our regular conversation with Denver 7 Chief Meteorologist Mike Nelson. Also, why he and I are eating our words. Then, a reunion of an air traffic controller and his control tower at Denver's old airport. It looks just like it did then. You know, old, small, but was home. I'm Leanne Klassen, and my husband Bob and I are CPR leadership partners. We are very happy to be able to support CPR. The wider reach, the wider coverage of the world, of Washington, of Colorado, and individual communities across various platforms all continues to add to the value of CPR, and it truly is a treasure for our state. Connect your passion for CPR with a gift at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. It's important to admit when you're wrong, and I was. So was Mike Nelson, Denver 7 chief meteorologist. Let's listen to a snippet of our last conversation about climate and weather in Colorado. Why don't we play a little game? Mike, I was thinking we could each guess when the first significant snowfall will be in Denver. Sounds good. I'll start. Okay. I'm going to say October 11th. All right. I like that one. I'm not going to be far behind you. I'm going to say October 15th. Indeed, both of us were wrong. Hi, Mike. Uh, Hi, Ryan. Yes, indeed. As I recall, Sunday last weekend was very, very nice with sunshine and warm temperatures. And, you know, I just walked back from the outside into the studio as we record this on Thursday, and it's fairly balmy. Why are we so wrong? In other words, why hasn't Metro Denver seen any measurable snow yet? Well, when we were talking a month ago, the ridges and the troughs in the atmosphere, those dips in the jet stream, you know, they're way on the other side of the world as far as what might come in and bring us a storm. And there was a pretty significant storm last week that the low pressure system went across southern Wyoming instead of southern Colorado and dumped snow all over Wyoming, brought snow to our mountains and then dumped a whole lot of rain across Nebraska and the Dakotas and all the way up into Wisconsin. And that storm tracked about 150 miles too far to the north. Had it been a little farther south, that would have been our first significant snow. Mm -hmm. So we were wrong, but it was uh, not that far off. Of course, that's like saying, I kicked that 55-yard field goal, and you know it was just a foot outside of the upright. So I gave it a really good kick, but we still didn't win the game. Is there a reason to be concerned? Are we looking at some sort of record? Just put this into context for us. Okay. In the short term, a little bit, because we are drying out again. We're still not in drought conditions here in Denver or along the I-25 corridor or for most of eastern Colorado, but western and southwestern Colorado 
getting into a pretty significant drought now. And so that is cause for concern. Right now, I mean, we're enjoying another beautiful day uh, with temperatures around 80 this afternoon. It's going to be fantastic. And the nice weather is going to hold into the weekend. So I'm hard to call this bad weather when it's beautiful blue skies and comfortable conditions. But if it were to continue too long, yeah, we're going to get too dry. I'm so glad you mentioned the growing drought on the western slope because I checked out the drought monitor. And indeed, Grand Junction, you know, up north and down south, the Four Corners. I mean, the map is a quilt of yellow and orange alerts. We also had a really wet spring and early summer. You know, a big green up is how forestry experts and land managers describe it. All that grass and brush and trees, like, is that going to dry into wildfire fuel? Yes. And (laughs) I was very happy when the grounds people that take care of the five acres of open space behind our house came out and chopped down the four foot tall native grasses that were out there because that is a fire concern for me personally and for my neighbors. And all along the front range, as the grasses dry out, let's kind of go back to the Marshall Fire. We're going to have a lot in that urban wild interface that's going to be very dry grasses if we continue to have a warm, dry fall into early winter, Mm -hmm. which is what we had that year of the Marshall fires. We had a good green up in the spring and then very dry into the late summer and fall, and you had all of that fuel. Winter wildfires. Those seem like two words that don't belong together, but they, they do now. They do. And, you know, it it was uh, partly just weather and partly climate change because we had a wet snowstorm arrive the next day. And had that storm been a day or two earlier, the Marshall Fire wouldn't have happened. Now, not to say it couldn't have happened later, but I mean, that's the difference. Fires occur. They always have. But with a warming world, we're seeing more of them bigger, hotter, and the fire season lasting longer. Mike, I ran across a tool called the Climate Shift Index, and it comes from an outlet called Climate Central. I am very familiar with both. Okay. Well, this tool reveals how much climate change influences the temperature on a particular day. And I plugged in our zip code at CPR. Sure enough, this week's highs are very likely a function of global warming. Do you trust the tool? And how important is something like that to translate the science? I think it is very useful because weather and climate, while related, are two different things. Mm. Weather is a short term, changes rapidly. Climate is the long term average. But another analogy that I like to use that involves major league sports is that weather is like one play in a football game and climate is the history of the National Football League. Mm. With climate change, as the world gets warmer, even though we can have a cold day or a snowstorm, we're going to see a shift toward the warmer conditions. In some areas, that means a shift also toward drier, because warmer air also can mean lower humidity and a greater need for precipitation because you get more evaporation. But if you are close to a large body of water, warmer air also holds more water. So when it does rain or snow, you can get more of it. Mm -hmm. Everything gets a little more extreme. And so a tool that helps parse that out is one that, you know, you think is useful, I hear. 
Well, let's be explicit about the short to medium term forecast. What do you? You s- want to try the bet again? <laughs> no, no, I'm done. I, I like that we both lost. Yeah, there there's something you go. <laughs> comforting about that, Mike Nelson. What are forecasts showing for the state? Okay, we are in a, an El Nino pattern now, which is the warmer than average sea surface temperatures in the Pacific around the equator. The Pacific is a big ocean, and exactly where that pool of warm water is the warmest changes how the jet stream pattern develops across North America and, frankly, around the whole world. The current projections over the next 30 to 90 days are we will be averaging warmer temperatures, not going to see a lot of cold waves coming down from Canada, not to say there won't be some, and the wetter than average conditions are more likely to be over the southern Great Plains, parts of Texas, all the way across the southeast. Colorado's kind of in between. It's drier predicted to the northwest. We're kind of in that indeterminate area. A couple of things I think we can take home from that. Probably not going to be a particularly cold winter. Storm-wise, during El Nino winters, we've had big storms. The blizzard that occurred at Christmas Eve back in 1982, that was El Nino. El Nino, October 1997, March 2003, also an El Nino year. So you can get that rogue big storm system that comes through And that would be the only thing people would remember. If we had a a two and a half foot snowstorm in Denver this winter, they'll remember the winter of 23, 24. Boy, we had that big storm. Hmm. But it might be that's the only one that comes in that's a big one. Statistically, El Nino winters for the front range tend to be not necessarily big snow producers on the whole. I guess I I want to invoke briefly skiing. Hmm. And of course... Snowpack is our largest reservoir. So what you've laid out there, these all have implications. I mean, obviously for recreation and for water storage. We had a pretty good season last year and we had a great spring this year, which really took care of a lot of the drought concerns. I'm hoping that we get at least an average snow year this year. El Nino years in my 30 years here in Colorado, I've tended to favor snowpack for the central and southwestern mountains, more so than, say, up around Steamboat and Summit County. But again, it only takes a couple of little uh, of storms that track properly. We missed one a week ago. But if you, you get that storm that just dips far enough south, you can really change the equation on that. You know, when people say to me, uh, you can't even predict the weather next week all that well, how can you predict what's going to happen decades from now in terms of climate change? And the fact is that weather is harder to forecast than climate Hmm. because weather is these little rogue storms that come through. Climate is the fact of the Earth's temperature is warming up because it's a matter of heat in versus heat out. Weather's kind of moving heat side to side, and the global temperature is the amount of incoming energy versus what goes back out. And as we add carbon dioxide to the atmosphere and methane, uh, we're trapping more of that heat, causing the overall planet to get warmer. And that, folks, is the history of the NFL. Mike, thanks so much. (laughs) Hey, great to talk to you again, Ryan. Mike Nelson, Denver 7 chief meteorologist. He joins us monthly to chat about Colorado's climate and weather. We won't hold our breaths for snow in Denver, given our incorrect guesses the first time around. Sorry about that. 
Madonna with Sorry. The Material Girl will stop in Denver in March on her celebration tour, by the way. We'll be right back to climb the tower at Denver's former airport. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's not only like paint on a wall, it's like culture on a wall, and that's meaningful. Check out Off the Walls, a new podcast about the stories and the people behind Denver's street art. It was exactly what the community needed at the time that it was being put up. Off the Walls on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. With support from Janice Henderson Investors. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Perhaps you work in hospitality or energy. Maybe you're a nurse or in construction. And maybe you're experiencing some ennui. Well, there's a new job for you, one that might pay less but gives you creative freedom, summers off, and the chance to inspire minds. Here's CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine. If you work in certain industries, you're needed, especially in public education's CTE classes or career and technical education. We want somebody who has done it in real life to be able to come and tell these students that's not how it is in the real world. That's Carrie Ann Mathis, a program director with the Colorado Community College System. It oversees career and technical training in community colleges, but also middle and high schools. Nearly 40% of the state's secondary students took at least one CTE class in 2021-22. However, classes in the CTE fields, from business and marketing to engineering and hospitality and health, have among the biggest teacher shortages. Trying to convince that person to leave their six-figure job to come to a school district is a real issue. Today, her team is hosting a training for new and old career tech teachers in the engineering and media arts fields. And so in, in Minecraft, it's really easy to go build and code. They're learning about Minecraft. The company offers free classroom lessons that can be woven into just about any subject. NASA has lessons, too, as well as Adobe. There's also presentations from a number of national and Rocky Mountain robotics competitions. So for those of us who have... For teachers like Dr. Ramesh Madhuri... ...completed the two drawings for this week... ...making the switch from, say, engineering to becoming a CTE teacher was worth it. Here's why. You could be making $200,000, but you have no time. Madhuri was trained as a mechanical technologist. He says teaching gives him summers to do the engineering and other projects he wants to that continually inform what he teaches to his students. His job now also gives him the chance to deliver the kind of education he wanted, classes that were relevant to the outside world. If there's no relevance, if students can't apply the knowledge, then it's in a vacuum. He taught architecture and mechanical drafting at Denver's South High School for more than a decade. Last year, Maduri's students partnered with South Platte Wastewater to redesign part of the facility. The students presented their ideas to the facility's top brass. So what we're actually doing is moving the content we cover outside of the four walls. It's no longer for a class. It's bigger than a grade. It's about life. 
CTE, he says, prepares you to integrate into society because you're learning how to work in a team, think critically, and problem-solve. 28-year-old media arts teacher Natalie Huff says young people don't want to stay with one company for 35, 40 years like her parents. CTE offers kids an ability to not necessarily strike things out early on, but to try them, decide if they like it. And it gives them skills that they can shift and meld into another job down the road. And it's not shutting off college, she says. Huff, who teaches in Mapleton, has a background in marketing, which didn't give her paid time off. Now, I still work my side hustle. I still own my own business. I can still run art shows. Like, that flexibility, you can't beat. And her students get real-world business experiences because she has connections. Others didn't land in their dream teaching job until later in life. And here I am, at 57 years old, a teacher teaching what I love, which is the arts. Jen Riley taught music and technology for a while. She's been a photographer and a truck driver. She says she was always helping and teaching other truckers on the road. So she was thrilled when she landed a job teaching multimedia arts at Trinidad High School. She loves helping kids learn employable skills. I've got a couple of kids that want to do tattoo. And I'm like, cool. We'll work on your portfolio of tattoos, and we can do that in Illustrator. Over at Littleton High School, Sean Rasmith is happy he left a career in IT and engineering to become a teacher. He tells an old joke to explain why he left. Students admit sometimes when they don't know something, engineers don't. What he means is kids have that sense of wonder and wow. They haven't been told no. They fail and fail and try again. Rasmith says it's important for CTE teachers to know what's happening in industry. He'd like to see a way for people close to retirement to come in and teach a class or two and say, I walk those shoes. I live that life you're going to do. I think is really powerful for kids to see that example. I'm Jenny Brendine, CPR News. Denver's airport used to be a whole heck of a lot closer to the city. And you're reminded of that when you see the old control tower. Now, the brewery that took over the building is giving tower tours, something we were able to do back in 2017 with a man named Mike Coulter. He worked as an air traffic controller at Stapleton for eight years. Have you been back to this site since Stapleton closed? Not in... since 1995. Really? This is your first time first, back? First time back. And I wonder what is going through your mind or your heart right now. I'm wondering where everything is. I know it looks a lot <laughs> looks a lot different around here. There aren't runways. You can't runways. put airplanes in any of these buildings here. <laughs> We're surrounded by homes uh, because a neighborhood has grown up around what yeah. used to be taxiways and terminals. Yep. What do you feel when you look up at that tower? It looks just like it did then. You know, old, small, but was home. Now you say it's small. I guess we're going to have that experience ourselves, but what do you mean? Well, compared to DIA or any of the newer towers, it, there's not a lot of space up there, about 800 square feet, so not a lot of room to move around. Well, why don't we go up to the top of the tower, and I'd like to ask for a few of your memories from <laughs> okay. up there. And a lot of them. So, Mike, the elevator isn't operating. We're going to take the stairs all the way up? Yep, take the stairs. Okay. I've done that before. That, that, that's something you're used to. I'm used to it. How yep. many stories do you know? Uh, I can't remember what this one is. I think we're on 14 or 15 compared to DIA, which is 33. Okay, let's go up. With hard hats on, Mike and I begin the long climb to the top. It does go on, doesn't it? On and on and on, nothing changes. 
four stories, then eight, ten, twelve. We pass what would have been the control tower offices and break room. Water falls on us as snow melts on the roof from a recent storm. There's a draft, too. And it was always this cold in here, too. It never warmed up. Finally, we reach the top, and Mike Coulter takes it all in. Oh, man. What a view. Nicer view than DIA, let me tell you. Why? Closer to everything. Yeah, so much closer to the mountains than DIA. A lot. It is pretty small. How many people would work in this space? Uh, you generally have six. Six, plus all the equipment. Everything was close. With so many people in such a tight space, did it get smelly? Ah, you know, on occasion. Uh, you know, if the air conditioning went out, or a couple times in the winter when the furnace went out, you know, when, and they heated up, we'd get fog on the windows. <laughs> I remember one time we had somebody wipe the windows down because of the fog that was on when they were trying to get it going again. It was low-tech sometimes. Uh, all the time was low-tech. Yeah, compared to today, yeah, this was very low-tech. Uh, yeah, it looks a lot different. I want you to tell us about when the Pope and President Clinton <laughs> came to Denver. Their big 747s were parked. And there were two of them down there, and they were nose-to-nose. -nose. Uh, it was back in 1993, just before this closed. Uh, in fact, had DIA opened on time, all that would have taken place out at DIA. Ah. What else do you remember from that day? Well, when they were leaving, I mean, there's a set protocol for almost anything that happens with dignitaries come and go. Well, they were both parked over there, you know, and we didn't have to close the airspace down like you do today. Oh. So this airport just kept operating. Uh, and you had the Pope and the President over there. Air, Air Force, Force One. Air sitting, Force One yeah. and Papal One. It was an <laughs> Aerotalia 747. They were waiting for each other to leave. And through communications and however they deal with each other, I mean, obviously we had the Secret Service up here. In the tower? They would, yeah, they would, a week in advance, their phones would come in and it set up and then there'd be a Secret Service agent just hanging around, oh, drinking wow. coffee, watching what was going on. But it sounds like the president was thinking the Pope would go first and right. the Pope was they, thinking the neither president. Neither of them knew which first. one was supposed to leave first. <laughs> so they were literally both pointed out there and we're like, okay, we close the airport now to let them taxi out. We shut the East West complex down. Okay, somebody move. Who went first? Uh, eventually the Pope did. The but Pope But you see somebody first. come out, somebody in a military uniform, eventually you saw the door open, Air Force One came out and went over to Paper One uh, and had a conversation. And between that and their radios and telephones, uh, they resolved and the president stayed there and waited until the Pope left. Uh, and he literally sat there until the Pope was airborne and then he taxied out. Taxiway diplomacy. Yeah. Yeah. For those who haven't been in Denver long enough, one of the cool things about the old Stapleton Airport is that uh, one of the runways, taxiways, went over I-70. Over so the interstate. It's quite possible to have a 747 on top of you. Yes. Yeah. Not quite possible. Quite likely. Quite likely. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favorite airport between Denver and Stapleton, DIA and Stapleton? Oh, I would take Stapleton a heartbeat. Why? Why? It would, you know, maybe because I, I spent so much time here, but it was, it was smaller. It was more compact, uh, certainly a little more crazy. Uh, work by the seat of your pants type operation. I mean, things happened here a little quicker. I mean, things out at DI are still technical and busy, but here 
this airport wasn't built for the amount of airplanes that landed and took off every day. Mm, you had, had to, 1,800, 2,000 airplanes land and taken off in this small space. You it's, had to adapt. It, you had to adapt, and with yeah. the changing wind and weather, we'd take off opposite direction, crossing back and forth. It was just, you had to be on your toes. And when I was on the ground, they all look alike. So, How much different was the weather here at Stapleton than at DIA where you later worked, given how much closer it is to the mountains? was uh, Out there you could see it coming to some extent. You're a little farther away from the mountains, you could see it build. Here, being close to the mountains, they would literally build every afternoon in the summer. The clouds would build. The clouds would build, the thunderstorms would build, you know, and we just keep going until they get built to a point. But this close, once they roll off the foothills, they're here. We had to turn the airport around. Uh, to get him into the wind. Clear to land, jet like 2128. Uh, wind show alert now, 25 knot loss on the runway, wind 280 at 1 niner, runway 26. Uh, United uh, 579 is going on. And 579, Roger. And with this airport, along with Orlando, uh, these two airports had the most thunderstorms and wind shears of any airport in the country. That is former air traffic controller Mike Coulter speaking with me in 2017 atop the tower at Denver's old airport. The tower is now part of Flight Co. Brewing, which has begun regular tours. There are so many fabulous faraway places to see, such as Mexico, Sweden, Hawaii, Japan, and Capri. There's so many exciting and wonderful places Mountains and jungles and desert oases Pleasant as home is, it isn't what Rome is So why stay there when there are so and many And Colorado Matters continues into this next half hour. I'm Ryan Warner, you're at CPR News and KRCC. And Rio just be only names to you and me. I'm Jenna McMurtry. As a news intern for CPR this summer, I covered health, education, and justice across Colorado. You also heard me on NPR a few times. CPR offers opportunities like these and more to current students and recent graduates to set up the next generation for success. Learn more about our internships and fellowships at CPR.org jobs. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. It was 1938. The Grand Canyon and the river tearing through it, the Colorado, had been home to indigenous people for millennia. The white explorers who came after were men. Conventional wisdom was that it was no place for women. But that didn't stop two female botanists who published the first study of plant life in the area. Their story is told in the book Brave the Wild River by Melissa Sivany. She's a science reporter for KNAU Public Radio, and we spoke in July. The scientist who had the idea for this expedition is Elzada Clover. She was a botanist at the University of Michigan. What stands out to you about her? She was a fascinating person. You know, she was born on a farm in Nebraska at a time when women were really expected to become wives and mothers and not really do anything else with their lives. She was not interested in that at all. What she was interested in was cactus. And huh. she had this kind of wild idea that she was going to make a complete collection of all of the cactus in the Southwest. 
And so she would just go out and do this in the summertime. She would drive as far as she could and pick up cactus plants. And that's what led her to this idea that, you know, I could I could get a bigger collection if I actually go down the Colorado River. Were you able to find out why cactus in particular were so fascinating to her? I never found that out. I know it happened sometime when she moved to Texas, um, kind of in her 20s and early 30s. I think she just fell in love with cactus while she was there. Yeah, I mean, I, I imagine how easy it is to fall in love with something that might not have been around me as a kid and becomes fascinating because it's new, it's novel. How did she come up with the idea of traveling through the Grand Canyon? Was it was it the cactus? Well, so in 1937, in the summer, she was out collecting cactus in a place called Mexican Hat, Utah. And she was staying at a place called the Mexican Hat Lodge. And it turned out the owner of the lodge was this fellow named Norm Nevels. And he had this dream that he was going to start a commercial river running business in the Grand Canyon, which wasn't happening at the time. Nobody was doing like regular trips in the Grand Canyon. And Norm Nevels had never done it. He was taking trips down the San Juan River, which is a much quieter, you know, nicer river. And so one evening at the lodge, they're just talking and they realized that they could team up and do this. Like Norm could get his river running business kind of off the ground and Elzada could go down and get the cactus plants that she wants to get. I mean, it's, it's really important to remind folks that as common as river runs are today, yeah, th- this was a novel concept that there would be a guide and that you might do this. You know, this was for science, not leisure exactly. But we, we sort of take this for granted today, don't we? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, river running at the time was really, really different than today. You know, they, they built the boats. Norm Nevels built the boats by hand in Mexican Hat, Utah. He had a special order, a bunch of material. You know, they didn't have really very good river maps. They didn't have very good food with them. Um, they didn't really have, like, waterproof materials to keep their clothes and, the you know, the plant collection dry. Very, very different than if you go down the Grand Canyon today. But Alzada had to convince Nevels to guide her. I mean, there was a, a little bit of a campaign, right? I think she was really the driving force behind the trip. I mean, Norm Nevels certainly would have eventually gone. I mean, he had a dream to do the Grand Canyon. Um, but Alzada's passion for this idea really drove it forward. And she, you know, she pestered him by letter over the next couple of months after that first meeting. Um, to really get this off the ground and make it happen. And uh, she and her her partner in this endeavor, Lois Jotter, had to scrape up the money. It was quite expensive to get the materials to build the boats and all of the other supplies. Um, Neither of them had a lot of money, but they were committed and they made it happen. Lois Jotter, this graduate student that uh, Clover recruits, what kind of experience did Jotter have and why did she decide to go? It's funny, you know, Jotter described herself as not a particularly adventurous person um, <laughs> compared to compared to her mentor, Clover, who was quite, quite an adventurous. Um, but I, I'm not sure I would push back against that characterization. She actually did have a lot of backcountry experience. Um, she had trained to be a National Park Service naturalist at a time when women weren't being hired for those jobs. And so she did have a lot of ex- experience in the backcountry and camping outdoors and, you know, plant collecting and all of that. Um, but she considered herself very bookish and academic. And so I think this was a little bit outside of her comfort zone. And she's quite young, right? 
She's quite young. She's Lois Strader is 24 years old, and Alzada Clover is 41 years old. We'll get to the science shortly, but there was real danger on this journey. Give us an example of a near miss. Well, really, things go badly right from the very beginning. And you have to remember that um, this crew, in the end, there's six of them total. None of them have any experience with going through white water. Uh, so they really don't know what they're getting into. They start at Green River, Utah, and they have a couple of pleasant days going down the Green River. And then they reach the Colorado. And you can tell from the diaries they kept, they're all just kind of in awe and they're shocked by how powerful the water is. They've left in the middle of summer. It's the rainy season. The Colorado River is running very, very high and none of them are quite prepared for what they're about to experience. And right at that moment, like the very first test they have of going down the Colorado River, they stop and they're looking over the very first rapid. And one of the boats that they've tied up on the banks pulls away and goes off down the river without them. Mm. And this is pretty bad because they've got three boats. You can imagine they've probably split up their food pretty equally between the boats. And it's the start of the trip. So if they lose that boat and all of the food inside of it, they're going to be in real trouble. There's really no way to hike out. There's no emergency radio to call for help. Like they're on their own out there. So Lois Jotter and her boatman jump into one of the other boats and they chase it down. And her first experience with Colorado River Rapids is this kind of wild four-mile run down this incredibly high, incredibly powerful river. And at the end of all of that, through some, you know, a series of unfortunate events, she ends up stranded all by herself all night on the banks of the Colorado River. And that was the story that really drew me into wanting to write this book, because I think in that situation, I myself would have been completely terrified. Yes. Right. But I found a letter she wrote uh, several weeks later to her mother where she described this experience of being stranded all alone all night. And she said, I had a lovely time. It's so funny because I think of the fact that there are some mornings I wake up, I get in the car uh, and I hit a red light or I miss the bus, and I think, oh, my day's cursed. You know, like, <laughs> when, when, when adversity, and neither of those are adversity, let's be clear, but, like, when adversity greets you out the door, I think it's very easy to become a bit scared to move forward. So the fact that that happens so quickly and that she persisted, uh, that's remarkable. It really is. You know, and, and other members of the crew, the male members of the crew, had some doubts that they expressed in their diaries. You know, Norm Nevels in particular was like, maybe this was a bad idea. Um, <laughs> when you know, the, right when the guide moment. is saying that. <laughs> <laughs> he became quite worried, you know, which you could understand for sure. Uh, but both of these women, you know, they were like, we're ready to go. And I think they were actually really kind of exhilarated by the experience. It became pretty clear, and I think Neville's even says at one point, that the women handled the expedition far better than the men on the trip. Yes, which is, of course, completely opposite of the expectations. I mean, you're talking about a time when the, the journalists who are covering this expedition are saying, well, the, the women are going to be, you know, baggage. Like, they're going to be really useless if there's an emergency that happens. And, of course, the opposite is true. Um, both the women were doing incredible amounts of hard work on this expedition. They were helping get the boats downriver. They were doing all of the cooking. And they were doing, of course, their plant collecting as well. Yeah, I recall one scene where the two women are busy collecting plants 
remember, this is a scientific expedition. And the guys are like, where's dinner? And one of them says, why don't you eat some of the leftovers? And the women come back a little later and the men are still waiting for food. Clover described them as being uh, big-eyed and impatient under a rock. She was not impressed with that. Under a rock. (laughs) Okay, I'd love to talk about the science. What did they already know about the botany of the Grand Canyon? What did they want to know about plant life? You know, they didn't really know much because no one had gone and made a formal plant collection for Western science. Of course, the indigenous people who live in the region intimately know the botany there and have even shaped it over over generations. But for Clover and Jodder, this was really kind of uncharted territory. And so they went into it with a lot of questions. They wanted to know how the dis- different deserts in this region were kind of meeting and mingling and how those plants uh, kind of mingled with each other in the Grand Canyon. They wanted to know how um, plant life shifted with elevation as you went down the river. Really, a lot of the questions they were asking today we would think of as equal ecosystem science, but they were doing this at a time when the word ecosystem was not in widespread use. So they Hmm. didn't have that vocabulary to describe what they were seeing. Um, But they were asking a lot of questions about how these plants were shaped by the topography and the soil and the animals, all of these questions that today we think of as part of studying an ecosystem. Oh, that's fascinating, Melissa, because it strikes me that as a science reporter, you must have quite a vocabulary for ecosystems. And, and for the science we know today that we didn't know in 1938. So in some ways, as you're writing a book like this, you have to kind of not exactly play dumb, but like forget what you know and immerse yourself in the smaller body of knowledge back then. Right, yeah. And I wanted the reader to really be inside Clover and Jotter's heads on this journey. I didn't want to give away too much about kind of what the future was like, because I wanted you to feel like you were with them in 1938. So I did a lot of reading on, you know, kind of scientific papers in the 1930s and <sighs> what ecologists were talking about with each other at the time. And it was it was fascinating to see really kind of um, how far thinking these two women were and trying to shape what we now think of as ecosystem science. So how did they collect the plants? And you hinted at this earlier. How did they keep them safe, dry, you know? Right. Yeah, this was a little tricky. So um, they they created what are called plant presses as they were going down the river. So they would uh, uproot a plant or cut a plant and they would press it between pieces of newspaper and they would stack those together and put the whole thing between two pieces of wood and cinch it tightly. And then those were kept in the hatches of the boats, which were supposed to be waterproof, but they weren't really all that waterproof. And so one of their frustrations was that it was very, very hard to keep keep the plant collection dry as they were going downriver. And that was a challenge that they faced the whole way. You mentioned the diaries, reading the diaries. Did both women kept diaries? Both of them kept very detailed diaries, and I'm so grateful to them for uh, wanting to preserve those diaries. They donated them to archives before they died, and uh, I'm really grateful for them for, for realizing that their story maybe would be told somewhere down the road. Were they good writers? They were wonderful writers. They were both very funny in in different ways. Um, Clover, in particular, was a very dramatic storyteller. She had a a fine sense of drama. Um, And uh, they were both very open in their diaries about what they were experiencing. 
talk to me about the Native American tribes that had lived there. I mean, they were very familiar with these plants. As you said, they even had shaped the ecosystem. They had many uses for these plants. How did they react to the expedition? So there are 11 uh, federally recognized tribes that are affiliated with the the Grand Canyon who um, have lived there and moved through that region for generations. And as I was researching the plants, I realized how many of the plants in the region can really be thought of as cultivated plants that the indigenous people have, have brought into the region and have cultivated for food or for fiber. Plants like prickly pear and agave are just so culturally important and rich. Um, and the on this trip, the 1938 trip, Clover and Jodder didn't have, um, as far as I know, any really direct um, connections with the indigenous people. But that was something that Clover actually wanted to correct. She regretted that they didn't have time on this journey to spend time with any of the indigenous tribes. And so she returned the following year, and she spent several months in the canyon with the Havasupai tribe. And I think during that time, she learned a lot about how indigenous people have lived in this region. And she started to correct people when people said that she was the first woman to survive the Grand Canyon trip. Hmm. She would correct them and she would say, no, I'm the first non-Native woman to survive this trip. Your research included your own trip down the river, Melissa. It did. Did that bring you closer to Clover and Jodder, Elzada Clover and Lois Jodder? Yes, it certainly did. Maybe especially because I was quite nervous. I had never done any kind of whitewater river rafting before. Um, I joined a botany crew so I could get a sense of what it was like to actually have to work while going through the Grand Canyon. And um, it was incredible. And I did feel closer to these two women as I was going through that journey. Of course, the river has changed a great deal. And of course, it's much safer now to do this kind of trip. Mm. But uh, my own kind of apprehension about doing it, I think, helped me tap into the, the nervousness that they must have felt. How long was their journey? It was about 40, it was 42 days um, from Green River, Utah, and they ended at Lake Mead, which was just then starting to fill up behind Hoover Dam. It's interesting that this trip in 1938 came when the Park Service was young and there were conflicting philosophies about what its priorities should be for the Grand Canyon. Um, Could you speak to that a bit? Right. Yeah. I wanted to understand kind of what was going on in the 1930s with um, the the Park Service and the Grand Canyon region. And it was it was fascinating to me to to learn about how very focused at that time the Park Service was on tourism. Mm. They were you know, they were concerned that there weren't enough tourists, (laughs) which seems like a funny issue. Um, But it was still, you know, the, the Great Depression and there had kind of been a slump in travel. And so the Park Service was very focused on bringing more people into the parks and they really kind of groomed the parks you know like in in Grand Canyon they introduced animals that didn't necessarily belong that they thought would be attractive for tourists to look at things like pronghorn um, and they kind of groomed the trees to make them more pleasing you know it wasn't really a, you know about preserving nature it was about kind of presenting nature for people to look at mm-hmm. And there were folks at the time, both within and without the Park Service, who were advocating for a different way of doing things, who were talking about, well, we should stop stocking fish and we should stop moving around species and we should just let this place be and we should really uh, focus on science-based management. 
And I think Clover and Jotter's survey would have been quite useful for that because they were cataloging non-native species that had already shown up along the river channel. But there wasn't a lot of interest from, you know, kind of the upper level park service at the time for doing that kind of management. Well, and when she returns, uh, when both of them return to the University of Michigan, um, they're, they're kind of met with, I don't know, like a bit of a dismissive attitude by their colleagues. Yeah, and they really face that the whole way down, um, being told before, during, and after the trip that they were just doing a kind of a publicity stunt or, you know, they were being daredevils. And even their own colleagues really didn't see them as doing serious scientific work. And frankly, that had a lot to do with the fact that they were female scientists, which wasn't so common at the time. And they were both struggling to get recognition from their colleagues and from the wider world for the work that they were doing. I'll just end with this. Jodder actually went on a second scientific expedition on the river when she was 80 years old. That's right. What was she doing on that journey? She came back with a scientific expedition that was tracking how the river had changed over the last half century or so. And her observations as a skilled scientist, as a botanist, and as someone who had rafted the river before all of these changes took place were critical for actually shaping the kind of management that we have on the river today. Oh, uh, That's Lois Jotter and Elzada Clover, the women who went on this expedition in 1938, and they're the subject of Brave the Wild River, the untold story of two women who mapped the botany of the Grand Canyon. Our thanks to Melissa Sivany. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Melissa is also a science reporter for KNAU Public Radio. We spoke in July. When we come back, what's behind the profusion of black license plates here? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. In 1879, poet Walt Whitman ascended to Kenosha Pass. From exactly 10,000 feet, the view took his breath away. Mountainous chains and peaks in every variety of perspective, Whitman wrote. Every hue of vista fringed the view. So the whole Western world is an expansion of these mountains. A stagecoach driver named Kenosha Pass after his hometown in Wisconsin. Long before that, Ute hunters regularly crossed the pass for game near present-day Fairplay. Prospectors who swarmed over during the gold rush widened the path into a wagon trail. Kenosha Pass became one of the main routes to the mines of South Park and Aspen. And traffic reached its peak with the arrival of a railroad. Today, you can gaze upon the same expanse that captivated Walt Whitman at Kenosha Pass, one of the most popular and scenic segments of the Colorado Trail. A Colorado postcard from CPR, with support from National Jewish Health. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Have you noticed more and more vehicles in Colorado have black license plates? CPR's Mike Lamp tracked down the reason. The solid black background with white letters and numbers. They are a reissue of license plates last seen in the 1950s. And there are also newly reissued blue, red, and green plates. But it's the black ones that are generating a lot of questions. And we took some of those questions to Chris Hockmuth with the DMV, the Division of Motor Vehicles at the Colorado Department of Revenue. And uh, what's with the black license plates? Uh, This came out of a bill last year. They brought back the black, red, and blue backgrounds along with the green plate with the white mountains. So 
the green plate with the white mountains came first in 2022, and then the red, black, and blue came January of 2023. Well, let me run by you some listener questions about the black plates specifically. Bonnie asks, what is the significance of the black license plates? And maybe she's asking, like, do they mean something, the way that other plates encourage people to adopt a pet or be an organ donor or something? Right. These plates don't have a specific meaning. They're just a retired background that were brought back. They've just been wildly popular in a number of other states and here as well. Right. Gordon uh, likes the new plates. He says, how do I get one? Uh, You can get one at your county DMV office or you can go to dmv.colorado.gov and get them online. And can you do that even if your current registration is not yet expired? You can. The fees get prorated and you can switch out your plates right away. Now, our listener Jeff observes that these are the first plates at a long time without that Rocky Mountain skyline. Was that something that you all have to think about, that people miss the mountains? We did think about it a little bit, but the bill was very specific about the background. So we just reached back into the archives and pulled out the black and white plate, uh, the red and white plate, the blue and white plate, and tweaked up the colors and issued them. Is there sometimes uh, some controversy over new license plate designs? Yeah, like everything in the world, there's a whole lot of people that really like these, and there's a few people who are really happy with the standard green and white plate. Um, It seems, from comments I've seen flying around social media, it seems to be a a pretty happy mix of both. We have uh, one listener, finally, uh, Michelle, not a fan. She uh, wants to know who made the decision and why. You don't have to name names, but uh, like, how, how do you decide when to issue new plates and what they look like? So new plates come from the General Assembly. Usually what happens in, a, in case of a special license plate, like you mentioned earlier, the Adopt-A-Shelter Pet Plate, a group of people who have a particular interest or a nonprofit get together, they submit the paperwork to the department, they run a petition and collect about 3,000 signatures to demonstrate interest. They run a bill through the state legislature. Once they've approved it, the governor signs off on it. We issue their plate. One more question that is not about the black plates, but about all the other plates, and that is that Rocky Mountain skyline. People always want to know, are those real mountains or just a representation of Colorado's mountains? They're just a representation. They don't represent any set of range or peaks at all. So, like, there's no place in Colorado where you're standing there and you're holding a Colorado license plate out in front of you, and in the haze of distance there, you see the exact same horizon. That doesn't happen. Right. You can't line it up and make it match any set anywhere. It was just a drawing by the folks who helped us design plates, and it just made a good representation of the beautiful Colorado mountains. That is Chris Hockmuth of Colorado's Division of Motor Vehicles speaking with my colleague Mike Lamp. A $25 fee for the newly reissued license plates funds services for people with disabilities. Send us your questions about life in Colorado at cpr.org slash Colorado Wonders. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. 
Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC.